My name's Owen, and this one's Laura. 7th of March, 1965. 600 people are marching in protest across this bridge in Alabama. As they cross the crest of that bridge, the scene that they see coming into view before them is a whole line of police officers there, clubs in hand, slapping them in their wrists. Something is about to go down, and in fact, what is about to happen trans is, a, is a tipping point transforming the political situation across America. We'll return to that scene shortly. But as Andy said, we're doing this thing called pattern, and we're seeking to pattern our lives on Jesus, and currently asking questions of how the, the life of Jesus connects with our politics, how Jesus might refresh and renew our imaginations in this part of our thinking about this life we're living. We started off two weeks ago asking some questions about foundational issues of power, how we handle power, and how, and how the cross of Christ shows us a radically different way, where it's not about dominating and lording it over people. Actually, it's about empowering and serving and lifting people up with the opportunities and the power that we have. And then last week, we were asking some essential questions of essential vocation, how we're each made of the image of God and how we're called to to bear that image of God, to give witness, bear witness to that image of God on the face of the earth, and also to work to restore that image of God in one another. So these, these two things, these, the way we handle power, and um, what was the other one? Vocation. Vocation, to bear the image of God, the sacred value, recognize that sacred value in one another, and handle power in a cross-shaped Christ kind of way, these twin vocations are key reference points for us as we continue then to think about particular policies or decisions or um, things that we are implicated in by involvement in a country. And um, they're key touchstones to us as followers of Jesus into our, our thinking about politics. Today is part three. Violence is the topic. Some big questions, but our reading is from the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, and Jesus sits down on the mountainside to teach his disciples his way. And those listening in are joining the crowd as he teaches. And he begins and he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then jumping down to verse 38, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, 
hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Laura. Well, hi everyone. Good morning from me. Uh, isn't that a great passage? And uh, we've got only about 15, 20 minutes, so we're only going to scratch the surface of that passage and of this whole topic. And there'll be lots of ways in which we need to carry on this conversation in various different contexts over the coming weeks. About nine years ago, I had laser eye surgery, uh, just in one eye, so I still actually have to wear glasses for some things. It's a long story. Um, but laser eye surgery wasn't the nicest experience. After I had it done, I was taken into this really dark room. And sometimes I was with the laser eye surgeon, and she was checking things, writing things down, putting a patch on, doing these tests. And then sometimes I was all by myself, and it was this strange experience of my brain and my eyes trying to rapidly get used to a new way of seeing. And at points when I was on my own, it was so dark in there that I couldn't even quite see where the handle of the door was. And it actually, in my case, took quite a few weeks for my eyes to adjust. In Matthew chapter five, against the political backdrop of the day, Jesus is teaching his disciples to see things differently. He's teaching them to see things differently. And verse 1 of Matthew 5, if you take a look, it says that Jesus says these words to his disciples, to those who are set apart and called to follow him, to live in the ways of his kingdom. And then interestingly, by the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we read uh, in chapter 7 of Matthew's Gospel, verses 28 and 29, that crowds have gathered more people are listening in to this teaching, and Luke's gospel also has that same pattern. Now, the political backdrop of the day was the Roman Empire. Brutal, intimidating. For them, it was more blessed are the winners. Blessed are those who tread on others to get ahead, and blessed are those with the most horses and chariots. And it's into this vibe of the political empire that Jesus is teaching his disciples to see things differently. And today, we as followers of Jesus, as those who walk with him and know him, we are invited to have our minds renewed by the Holy Spirit, to be shaped, to see things differently in line with the kingdom of God. And it can be especially tricky for us, especially when... Uh, our way in the kingdom of God cuts against the ways of culture or of government, where politically it might sometimes be about survival of the fittest or protection of your nation state or claiming your rights onwards and upwards, easy and comfortable or making our countries great. As followers of Jesus, we can sometimes feel a bit like we're in a dark room, disorientated, not quite sure of the way forward, and we can't quite remember where the door handle is. And the first thing we want to say this morning is that this new vision, this new way of seeing things, well, it's a bigger, wider, longer vision. Our passage says, doesn't it, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the persecuted. Really? Blessed? <laughs> How does that work? Now, upstream, it's really important to say, and we'll say more about this later, that Jesus is not saying here, and scripture does not say that it is a good thing to have evil done to you. 
Jesus is not saying that it is a good thing to be treated badly. No, instead, in the face of oppressive systems of evil, Jesus is declaring the restoration and the redemption of the kingdom of God. He is calling out that bigger, that wider, that longer vision of life in his kingdom. You know, sometimes we can read the Beatitudes, verses 3 to 12, almost like a Christian tick list, where we think, okay, if I do the first half of each verse, so this week I'll strive to be a bit more meek and a bit more merciful, then I'll manage to tip myself over into the second half of the verse and end up uh, in the inheriting the earth box. But actually here... Jesus is making an announcement. He's making a statement, a declaration, an announcement about the very nature of the kingdom of God. Jesus is not so much setting up a list for us. He is declaring over us, over our pain at the hands of others, over the sacrifices we might make for following in his kingdom, over the losses, over those countercultural moments or the challenge to political norms that in him alone Do we find our belonging, our citizenship? In him alone are we blessed? Are we loved? Are we known? Are we given a future? And the kingdom of God, these verses say, well, it's about humility. Verse 3, being poor in spirit. Verse 4, mourning over our sin and our need of God. The kingdom of God, it's about, verse 9, being peacemakers. That's where it's really at. The kingdom of God is characterized by perfect justice and righteousness and love. And in Jesus, in his ministry, in his death and his resurrection, the kingdom has begun, has been established, and it will come in full when he returns one day. And so that's the eternal vision. That's the longer, wider, bigger, deeper, fuller, more beautiful vision that we see here This is the vision of the world to come, which can break in through the Holy Spirit in the here and now. And so the Beatitudes, they give us this wider frame of reference to locate our present suffering, our left outness, in the light of eternity and in the comfort and presence of Jesus and the care of a church family here and now. In his recent book, Reading While Black, Esau Macaulay touches on some of this in relation to our topic, violence and martyrdom, saying, the hope of new creation is often portrayed as an opiate lulling us into complacency, but the kingdom, the coming kingdom remains a central pillar of theology that not only gives us hope for the future, but also negates the power, and he quotes from Matthew 10, of those who can kill the body but do no more. Owen. So that was the the bigger, wider, longer vision of the coming kingdom of God that celebrates patience, humility, gentleness, not domination. But what about a vision for peacemaking in the here and now? Does this wider perspective mean that we don't resist evil as verse 39 taken at face value would seem to read? Turn the other cheek? Is this a doormat spirituality that would allow all sorts of bullies to do all sorts of things to us without consequence? Well, no. Back in 1965 in Selma, Alabama, where you got these 600 unarmed protesters crossing the bridge, walking towards the police, 
what happened next was, in the words of Amelia Boynton Robinson, who was one of the organizers, one of the marchers towards the front of the line, what happened next was the police charged. They, they came from the right, they came from the left. One shouted, run. I thought, why should I be running? Then an officer on horseback hit me across the back of the shoulders. And for a second time, on the back of the neck, I lost consciousness. And these pictures of Amelia lying there on the road, unconscious, shocked America. And so two, two days later, this time with the world watching, Amelia and many others bravely marched again. This is the sort of turning the other cheek that exposes evil, that doesn't hush things up or keep secrets, but rather calls at our conscience, calls at our humanity, doesn't maintain the status quo, but actually offers to deliver transformation. You can watch the film Selma to get much more of this wonderful story, this, this wonderful action that was orchestrated with great tact to, to transform the political situa situation in America. It is inspired. And of course, the organizers took their inspiration from Jesus. They were entering the same imaginative possibilities that Jesus is evoking in these verses when he says, when someone strikes you, turn the other cheek. When someone demands your shirt, give them your coat also. When someone asks you to carry their bag one mile, go the second mile. In a culture where handing over your outer cloak to someone who's already demanding your shirt off you would have left you rather underdressed. Actually, this, this move creates an awkward situation, an awkward public situation to the shame of the bully in this situation. Under Ro Roman occupation, when a Roman soldier had the rights to demand any peasant carry their big heavy pack for one mile but no further, to carry on for a second mile was quite a subversive move, turning the power dynamics in that situation. The soldier could get into trouble for this. What are you doing? Put it down. So turning the other cheek, like each of these creative responses to violence and oppression, is actually a move of inner strength, reclaiming that image of God, dignity, and also inviting everyone else, those watching, uh, even the, the perpetrator in that situation, encouraging them to, inviting them to recognize that dignity. Jesus is all about resisting evil in the sense that he is never compliant with or co-opted by um, evil. So clearly the sense that's meant in verse 39 is do not violently resist evil. Do not meet evil with evil. Do not meet violence with violence. Do not meet malice with malice. Do not meet an attempt to tread your life down into the ground with some kind of counter move to try and tread your opponents down into the ground first. Jesus is actually saying there is a different way to be, a way that is in deeper coherence with the deepest truth of things. The deepest truth is not dog eat dog, might is right. The deepest truth of things is the peace and the communion and the love of God. Most of us are generally quite taken with the myth of redemptive violence, as one commentator 
calls it, you know, just watch any Avengers film and you will see that clearly what you need at the end of the day is a bigger hammer or more sophisticated Iron Man weaponry. That is what you need to save the day. That's the, the story, the, the myth of redemptive violence. It is pumped into us. It shapes our imaginations. It affects how we feel about military spending, about weapons stockpiled in our name. And it shapes our imaginations in the little stuff as well, how we might instinctively square up to someone else, perhaps not physically, perhaps just verbally, or, or perhaps just mentally, as we meet aggression with more aggression. In the midst of our cycles of violence, Jesus says there is another way to be that actually opens up creative possibilities of redemption. The deepest truth of the universe is not Dog eat dog, might is right. There is a bigger, wider, longer vision of this coming kingdom of peace. And the calling upon us, the church, is to bear witness to this wider perspective. How does this peaceful way, this, this non-violence, fit in with global politics? Is there such a thing as a just war, a necessary evil? These are huge debates. Um, they weren't debates for the first three centuries of the church, but then ever since the, the dominating Roman Empire became somewhat Christianized and, and rebranded as, as the Holy Roman Empire, and Christians found themselves in positions of power and, and controlling armies, and with the accompanying kind of sense of responsibility that came with that and, and opportunities, these have been huge debates, very important and emotive ones as well. Combining political control, combining control of armies with the Christian faith, and in particular with the words of Jesus, is not at all easy or straightforward. Particularly when it comes to those questions of responsibility, of when to, there are horrific situations, when to intervene, and, and questions also of how that intervention could happen. I can't say much to these massive questions in just a couple of minutes, but bring on the email trains and the sharing of links and the, the thought journey that hopefully we can provoke in these, these few minutes now. But I'm just going to say this. We follow a king who, who would rather lay down his life than, than kill his enemies. So I think this gives us very good reason to begin to question our instincts around defense budgets and our support of lethal violence. I'm convinced that it's more urgent for us as the church to coherently bear witness here and now to this heavenly kingdom of peace than to lend our support to the killing of others in the name of this world's fleeting political arrangements. Final thing I want to say before handing back, none of this is a desire to leave unacknowledged the very real costly sacrifices made by countless soldiers, nor is it a pretense that all of us are not living in the, the undoubtedly living in the privilege, the privileged benefits of such acts and actions and sacrifices. But it is to lament the horrific tragedy of every war. It is to lament the cycles of violence that human society seems locked within and it is to begin to imagine possibilities for very real interruptions 
of these cycles. So it's a bigger, longer, wider vision. It's a vision for peacekeeping now. And finally, we want to say that it's quite simply a vision of our king. Jesus, because that's what we need, isn't it, in this whole patterning our lives. We need just a, a bigger and a deeper vision of Jesus, and it's to him that we take all those questions. It's to scripture that we take our questions. It's within the church family that even with our different opinions that we work these things out together, and we might be asking, you know, what about Romans chapter 13? What about the function of the state to preserve good and limit evil? What about the state having a different form and function? to the church. Well, let's keep listening and keep chatting these things through. But I want to end by mentioning something that struck me for the first time when I was rereading this passage again a few days ago, is how it specifies the gospel writer here gives the detail in verse 1 that Jesus sat down. I'm sure there's a whole host of things that we could say about that. But I was thinking the fact that Jesus is sat down saying these words means that he would have been at eye level with his disciples. As they are hearing this vision of the Beatitudes of life in the kingdom of God, he is literally in their line of sight. He is filling their vision, and they are filling his. And soon they would see him hailed as king. Now that fitted with their expectations of the Messiah, but he comes not on a Roman horse, on a donkey, riding into Jerusalem, and in doing that, uh, fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. Soon they would see him arrested in Gethsemane, and Simon Peter, in a fit of rage, would grab his sword and chop off the ear of Malchus, the high priest's servant, and Jesus would heal him instantly and say, no more of this. See, ultimately, to have this renewal of vision, we need to fix our eyes, our hearts, our minds, our lives on Jesus, our King, on who he is. And we need to ask the Holy Spirit to show us more of him, even now, in this moment, this week, that we might see the majesty and the divinity of Jesus and his justice and his love and his righteousness and his kindness. When Stephen is martyred, and we read of this in Acts chapter 7, this is exactly what happens. He has in this moment of being martyred, being stoned, he has this incredible vision of the risen Jesus and of the bigger, wider, deeper, longer vision of the world to come. And so what does this actually mean for us tomorrow, Monday, next week, this month Maybe we might find ourselves with a slightly more aggressive uh, colleague or, or family member or friend where we can choose in that moment to fix our eyes on Jesus, our King, and not imitate and not be in the same spirit with them. But instead, with our minds and our hearts on Jesus, we can love. We can, it's not an invitation to be passive or not to address issues, but we do so with Jesus, our King, on our hearts. We can speak and live and write with meekness. We can serve our communities lovingly. And we can join with organizations like Open Doors who support the persecuted church across the globe and who seek justice for them and an end to the evil and violence of those who are persecuting who are being persecuted. Maybe we have been hurt because of others' violence. 
this morning, Jesus sits down with us and he looks us in the eye and he knows our pain and he knows our hurt and we can take it to him for his light shines in the darkness. We're going to sing this song in a minute, which is based on the Beatitudes. And the chorus is a a beautiful song. The chorus has this line, this is not the end. That's that bigger, wider vision of the kingdom of God we've been speaking about. And then it says, keep your eyes on him. And that's how we do it. We fix our eyes on Jesus. And there are two other lines in this song, which I just want to say a bit more about One of them is, blessed are the ones who walk in kindness, even in the face of great abuse. And blessed are the ones who suffer violence and still have strength to love their enemies. Now, this is not saying that violence or abuse are okay, or that we just have to get over it, or that we should cover these things up. No, there are some situations and particularly painful experiences that mean it is insensitive to have a call to love your enemies without time and nuancing and sensitive care so that people feel safe and so that right and proper justice is known and experienced. So it might be that you could do with talking with someone after this morning and please do get in touch with us. That line, you see, walking in kindness doesn't mean that we can't take legal action. You know, calling out these things, seeking legal action, uh, making sure that someone has to realize the consequences of their wrong is a kindness. It doesn't mean that we have to stay in a place that's unsafe. It's an invitation to let the kindness of Jesus, a kindness A love for us which led him to the cross where he would take on the evil and sin of this world. To live, to walk in his kindness, in his love and to daily let him carry our burdens. To bring his healing and to live out of that place in relationship with him. So why don't we ask the Holy Spirit to help us, to renew our minds, our hearts, our lives, that we would be those who would see Jesus afresh. So Holy Spirit, we do just that. We ask that you would come and even now you would come. And as we sing this song, you would come and you would help us see Jesus afresh. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love for us, for your kindness, how we need you, how we love you. Fill us with your healing to those parts that are hurting or wounded. Would we love one another well in our brokenness? And Jesus, we we want to know you more tomorrow and this week to become more like you. So Holy Spirit, help us in that, we pray. Amen. So maybe just as we um, reflect on this song,